Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. We went to bed rather late that night. I suppose it was somewhere just before 11 o'clock. There were three of us in the room, the room of the small monastery. I really wasn't sleepy despite the hour, and so when the lights went off, I put in my earbuds and listened to music and just lay there for a while, hoping that I could catch a few winks. The alarm went off not too long later. It was maybe... 12:15 a.m. We got up and got dressed and slipped out into the darkness. In the darkness the group was gathering. Pretty soon as we gathered we started moving in the direction of the trailhead. And then we were met by guides and camels. I think I smelled the camels before I saw them and I thought I'll be walking. A few minutes later, we were on the path, starting up, first of all, a fairly slow incline and then beginning to climb. Over the next few hours, we climbed in the darkness until about the time that the sun began to silently emerge from the eastern horizon, we were on the summit. As that sun rose and began to cast its light across the landscape before us, it was stunning, spectacular. That desert landscape, looking in every direction and just considering, just thinking, trying to take in what was believed to have happened at this place. You see, this was the summit of a mountain sacred in the three Abrahamic world religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. It's known by different names, Mount Oreb, Mount Sinai, Jebel Musa, Mountain of Moses. There is the belief, no way to prove it. There is the belief that this was the place where Moses reached up and took the two stone tablets from the hand of God. And so to stand in that place and just sense what might have happened there was an emotional moment. As we think about going into this series entitled The Ten. Boundaries, character, and grace. I wish, I truly wish, we could make that trek in the early morning stillness that we could stand together on that mountain and take in emotionally the aura of the place. But we will have to do it at a bit of a distance. We can, in imagination, join the scene the scene that took place on a mountain that quaked and shook. But before we even begin to read those ten words, we, we intuitively know that there are questions that have to be asked. There's no question that the Ten Commandments are under question, such as what does a law given not centuries but millennia ago have to say to us? 
We live in 21st century Southern California. What can something that ancient speak into our day and world? Is it still applicable today? Did Jesus push it out of the way for this reality called grace? How does it apply? Is there something beneficial that we can gain by spending time pouring over the language of a law that's very ancient? In fact, as I was thinking about it, I think the attitude toward the Ten Commandments is probably captured in the words of a child. A mother wrote into Christian Parenting Journal and told the incident when they were having family devotions. Apparently, Dad had called them together for devotions, maybe evening devotions, and, and he was going to tell them the story, this story that we're considering and thinking about today. And so he was wondering how much they already knew about it, and so he asked them the question, can you, can you tell me how many commandments there are? Ten. Set ten, right over here. We've got the answer. Seth, on the other hand, five-year-old Seth, he answered the question to how many commandments there are by simply saying too many, <laughs> just too many, however many, ten or whatever the number is, too many, too much law, too much focus on legalism. I think that's probably the, the attitude that many have today. And yet that's where we turn our focus. But because that is the attitude, I, I, I want to share something before we even turn to and read the passage. I want to take you to a little quote that is made by a woman who was foundational in the formation of our church, Seventh-day Adventism. Her name, Ellen White. Ellen White makes a statement at one point that may arrest your attention, may cause you to wonder how that's true. She says that the Ten Commandments are ten promises. Ten promises, and that there is nothing negative in that law. Now, come now. You've read it. I've read it. And you've seen what's there. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. <laughs> thou shalt not. How, how, how do you say there's nothing negative there? How do you say they are promises? Well, it was in reflecting on that quote and those realities that Richard Davidson, professor of Old Testament interpretation at the seminary at Andrews University, Berrien Springs, Michigan, uh, had some words to write. I want, to listen. I want you to listen to what Dr. Davidson says. He says, in the light of Ellen White's statements, I looked closely at the Hebrew original of the Decalogue examining the grammatical forms that are used in each one of the Ten Commandments. To my surprise, I found that the eight commandments that begin with thou shalt not can, according to Hebrew grammar, be translated either as negative commands, prohibitions, or as emphatic promises. In harmony with the grammatical sentence structure, one can translate these commandments thus. I promise you, you will not have any other gods before me. You will not make for yourself any carved image. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I promise you that you will not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, covet. Even the fourth and fifth commandments, which are not framed in the negative, remember the Sabbath and honor your father and mother, do not use the imperative 
which is the normal way of giving a positive command in biblical Hebrew. Rather, they use the infinitive absolute, which in Hebrew often indicates an intensive promise. God is saying, in effect, I promise you, you will remember the Sabbath. You will honor your father and mother. And so each of the commandments can be translated either as a command or a promise. One's experience and consequent translation of the ten words all depends on where one begins the Ten Commandments. As a child, I was taught the Decalogue started with verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But that is not where the Ten Commandments begin. That is not where God starts speaking. The Decalogue begins in verse 2 where Yahweh says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the house of bondage. In effect, God says, I have redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb. You are already saved, and now I'm going to promise you power to keep my law. If one starts in verse 2, the commandments that follow become promises. So maybe they aren't as negative. As many of us grew up believing and thinking, maybe there's something new to be gleaned and learned from the Ten Commandments. So that's our focus. That's our goal in these coming weeks. So I invite you to take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. If you're reaching for a pew Bible, you'll find Exodus 20 on page 110. 110. Now, while you're turning there, just a couple of thoughts of background, a couple of words of context. First of all, you notice that they are called variously the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue or the Ten Words. Actually, the Hebrew translation of what they're called there is the Ten Words. Even in the Greek, there are two words from which we get the term Decalogue. They are the Greek word, deca, meaning ten, and logos, meaning word. The Ten Words. So scholars often refer to these laws as the Decalogue. Now a second reality to have in mind as we read the passage is that when we read this opening commandment of the Ten, there are two segments to it. Two segments. Remember that God is here forming, establishing a covenant with this people. As he establishes this covenant, the first commandment gives two realities. The first segment gives the basis of the covenant. The second segment gives the boundary of the covenant. Basis and boundaries. So let's read in Exodus 20, starting with verse 1. It says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Two segments. So we begin with the first segment, which gives us the basis for the covenant that God is making with his people. The basis of the covenant. That's found in verse 2. Again, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's the basis for the covenant he is making. Put yourself into the sandals of the Israelites. They have just left four centuries of slavery behind. They now have in go their goal set on the promised land to come. But don't move too quickly to the promised land and therefore forget what liberated them from Egypt. 
because Egypt was left in devastation behind them. It all started with Moses striding into the presence of Pharaoh and uttering those famous words, let my people go. To which Pharaoh immediately responded, I will not let your people go, nor do I even know or care who this God is of whom you speak. And thus began erupting on Egypt the ten plagues. The first two plagues make it seem like a contest between the gods of the Egyptians and the gods of the God of the Hebrew people because it's almost as though the magicians are competing with Moses. Moses in the first two plagues says, Let the water become blood. Let the land be infested with frogs. And the Egyptian magicians follow suit, produce the same thing. That always made me wonder, why would you want to do that? It's just more blood and more frogs. (laughs) But they did it. But starting with plague number three, contest is over. Because as the gnats swarm into Egypt and the magicians are unable to replicate the feat, they say to Pharaoh, this, this is the finger of God. One after another, they unfold, all moving toward that horrific final plague. Now, by about plague seven, the, the, the leaders in Egypt are saying to Pharaoh, just let the people go. Don't you see? Look around you. Egypt is ruined. Just let them go. But he refuses. And then hovering like the sword of Damocles over his head, over the heads of the firstborn of Egypt, the threat of that awful final plague. The Israelites will escape the intense mourning over what happens. Their firstborns live. And the reason is very simple. It is because of the blood of the Lamb splashed onto the doorpost of every home. Thus it is as later they hover around Mount Sinai. They have been brought here. They have been protected here. They have been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And here they are. And God speaks to them, giving them the basis of his covenant. I have brought you out of Egypt. I have delivered you from bondage. I want to read you what the words of one evangelical scholar underline about this moment. His name is David Baker, pardon me, David Baker. Listen as he addresses some of the, at times, confusion between Old and New Testament approaches. He writes, the relationship between the Testaments is sometimes expressed as a contrast between law and gospel. Old Testament religion is thought to be based on law in contrast to the New Testament gospel of love. But that is not the teaching of the Bible. It is true that Paul contrasts law and faith, for example, in Galatians 3, stressing that there is no point in relying on obedience to the law as a way of salvation because it is only through faith in Christ that we can be saved. That does not mean there's anything wrong with the law, however, so long as it is used according to its original intention as guidelines for life in the covenant community. It was never intended to bring salvation 
Obedience to law is the consequence of covenant, not its condition. People do not achieve a relationship with God by means of good behavior, faithful piety, or sustained effort. On the contrary, God saves people by His grace, bringing them into relationship with Himself, and they are expected to respond in gratitude by obeying His law. So gospel and law are complementary, not antithetical. Significantly, God gives the Decalogue to the people He has already freed from slavery in Egypt. He does not require obedience as a condition for achieving that freedom. In the Old Testament, just as in the New, obeying the law is intended to be a response to God's love, not a way to persuade God to love. So the Decalogue begins by reminding the people of God's love for them, which was demonstrated in their liberation from Egypt. Then it sets out laws for them as the people of God to put into practice in the future. These ten words are commonly called commandments in English, suggesting that there are rules to be obeyed or obligations to be fulfilled. That is partly true, but they are much more than that. In the context of biblical theology, it is more accurate to see them as guidelines for responding gratefully to the grace of God who loves and saves His people before they do anything at all. As Paul would later write, but God commends His love for us in that Christ Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. It's called grace. Grace. A man named Tony Allen from up in the Seattle area told recently about taking his two daughters out for an outing with dad. They were going to stop at a coffee stand and get something to drink. His two little girls, Abby and Flannery, were quite excited because they had taken all the money out of their piggy bank and they wanted to pay for their drinks themselves. As they walked up to the stand, their dad said to them, I'll take care of it. No, 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 Daddy, we want to pay for it. I'll take care of it. We want to pay for it, Daddy. It's fine. He said, okay. Abby got apple juice. Flannery got mango surprise. When the barrister had served the first one, she plonked her money right up there on the stand. He said, that'll be $2.06. He sorted quickly through her coins and said, um, this is about 80 cents. It's $2.06. This isn't enough. And Alan said, as soon as he said that, my other daughter tugged on my arm and said, Daddy, I'll use your money. <laughs> I want to be embarrassed here. That's the children of Israel. This is God's money, if you will. This is all on God. The basis for the covenant is God's action, God's power, God's redemption, God's gracious and glorious love, God's power in delivering them from Egyptian bondage. That's the basis of the covenant. First part of the first commandment. But there's a second part. Not only are we talking here about the basis of the covenant, we're also talking about the boundaries of the covenant. And that comes in the second segment of the first commandment. So we go back to Exodus 20. I want to read again verse 3. Very short, but it forms the later words of the commandment. Here's what it says. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall have no other gods before me. The boundaries of the covenant. Now, I realize that it's very easy coming from the cultural milieu in which we live and think and work. Very easy coming from this cultural milieu to hear a statement like that and to think, how intolerant is that? How egocentric is that? How exclusivistic is that? It's all about you. No other gods before me. But let me ask you a question. You've been, no doubt, to a wedding in recent days. I have weddings on the mind these days. You've been to a wedding. Let me ask you a question. When the bride and groom, in essence, said to each other, in this marriage there's only going to be two of us, just two, Not three, four, five, or six, just two. It's just going to be us and no one else. Did you sit there and think in your mind, how egotistical is that? How intolerant they are. How exclusivistic they're being. It's just all about the two of them. Or let me ask you what you thought toward the end of the wedding ceremony. When the minister spoke some words to them, the response to which is intended to be, I do. When the minister said, in sickness and in health, in prosperity or adversity, forsaking all other Keep thee only unto him, only unto her, so long as you both shall live. Dost thou so declare? What went through your mind? Did you think, what an intolerant couple? (laughs) Just the two of them? That's what God is saying. God is saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you to myself. I have liberated you from slavery. I have brought you into this covenantal relationship. As we establish this covenant between us, I am drawing a boundary line around us. It's just us. God doesn't want to be caught in the situation in which Princess Di found herself when she said, it's been a bit crowded in this marriage. There have been three of us instead of two. And so he draws a boundary. Just us. No other gods before me. You see, there are some relationships that are so deep, so profound, so soul-sharing, so committed, so based on promise and fidelity that to introduce someone else, something else, into that relationship is to threaten the entire edifice and foundation of the relationship itself. And that's what God is trying to communicate to his people. Yes, this is based on my undying, unyielding love for you, but there is a boundary. 
It's a mutually exclusive relationship. I will provide for your needs. It makes me wonder. Why then is there something within me that is so willing to look for other gods? After all, if, if I need forgiveness, God says, you have it. If you're craving, yearning for, praying for forgiveness, freedom, an expunged record, God says, done. Why would we look for any other God to deal with our past? If we need peace in the present, need the ability to be able to lay our heads on our pillows at night and have a, a, a peaceful heart, God says, I give it to you. My peace is yours. Why do we look for other gods, other ways to find peace? Or if we say there's a yearning within me for hope, because as, as I look toward the future, it is uncertain. I look at a fractured culture, a fractured country, a fractured world. And hope grows dim. In fact, it's in tatters now as it's being shredded to pieces. Where do I look? God says, I will give you hope. History is going somewhere. I haven't forgotten or abandoned you. I will give it to you. Fill your heart with it. And I end up asking myself, why do I look then for other gods, other ways to deal with past, present, or future? But we do. It's the spirit of the age. The spirit of the culture. One historian writing about ancient Rome said, Rome was bound to reject Christianity because Rome was tolerant. Rome was bound to reject Christianity because Rome was tolerant. It may have been our culture saying that especially when you bump up against this first commandment, no other gods before me. A pastor named Stuart Roosh got me to thinking about the Chipotle approach to our religion. We walk into Chipotle. I walk in. person behind the counter says, Welcome to Chipotle. What can I help you with? I say, I'm, I'm looking for meaning in life, some religion that can give consolation to my heart and soul. We sell that here. Do you want it on a tortilla or in a bowl? See, I'll take a bowl. All right, what do you want as the basis, the foundation? What do you want now? So I'll take, I'll, I'll take some of that money there, put that in, and some of that status over there, put that. Can I get some extra money on the, on the status, please? Absolutely. It's yours. What would you like to flavor it? Well, that philosophy right there, that, that looks really good. That's really popular now, isn't it? Oh, he says, the hottest thing we've got going. It's all about you. It's all about creating the own, your own God within you. It's all yours. You want something? Yeah, put, put some extra on there. It's filling up the bowl. He says, you want some salsa? What kind of salsa you got? Well, We've got this salsa here, only one God, we call it. This salsa, Jesus wants all your heart, we call it. I said, no, 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 that, that's way too spicy for me, way too spicy. Just, just leave that off. I'll take it as it is. Makes me think of 
of what Robert Bella and his colleagues wrote in that book now several decades ago, groundbreaking book, Habits of the Heart. As they interviewed people in this country to get a feel for what they believed about certain facets of our common life. And one of the areas into which they delved was what's your philosophy of life, your religious perspective, your approach in those ways. They interviewed a woman named Sheila. And Sheila said, well, I have pulled from all kinds of sources, religions, philosophies, and I've mixed it all up into something that works for me. I call it Sheilaism. That's my religion, Sheilaism. So maybe we have it, Johnism and Randyism and all the other isms. It's what works for me. And then we bump up against this, the boundaries of the covenant. If we're going to be in this, God says, it's us. Not all the other ways to try to find satisfaction, but you and me. It's a covenantal relationship. Now, just in case you're worried, just in case you're concerned, that such a relationship, such an exclusive relationship, might damage other meaningful relationships in your life, then listen to these words, the words of C.S. Lewis. Listen to what he writes about such things. He says, When I have learnt to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving towards the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. And so God says, Here's the basis of my covenant relationship with you. It's my action, my work, my power, the freedom that I give you, all based on my grace and love. That's the basis. But there are boundaries. And the boundaries are you and I are in this together. It's just us. I want to abandon you, and I ask that you be faithful to me. And it is growing out of that quality of covenant that we can approach the ten with the confidence to say, through the Spirit of His power, God will promise us, empower us to live lives consistent with His kingdom. God of grace. From the bottom of our hearts, we thank you and praise you for the love, the grace, the power that has drawn us to you, for the fact that when we stand in covenantal relationship, it's based on what you do, what you have done, not on us. But God, we also ask for empowerment. Being grateful that we can love because you first loved us, we also ask that you would empower us as we cannot do ourselves that we might live lives in harmony with your heart. For all this we thank you. In the name of Jesus.
Amen.